Today's reading is from 1 Samuel, chapter 13, verses 1 to 15. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel 42 years. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel. 2,000 were with him at Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah in Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, Let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. When the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets, among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering, and that you did not come at the set time, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favour. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Then Samuel left Gilgal and went up to Gibeah in Benjamin and Saul counted the men who were with him. They numbered about 600. Thanks, Heather. Well, we come to look at not just chapter 13, but to try and set in this context from chapter 12 through to 15 as we look at the life of Saul. So we're going to need help. <laughs> let's, let's pray. Dear Lord, as we continue our journey through 1 Samuel this morning, we once again echo the prayer of young Samuel. Speak, for your servants are listening. Amen. The late Eugene Peterson, a theologian, pastor, spiritual director and insightful writer, um, was once giving some lectures at which I was participating in and he drew our attention to the fact that he had begun in his own spiritual disciplines to live his life in the light of Old Testament rhythms of time. 
Um, as we see in Genesis, there is evening and there is morning, a first day. And so he implemented that and that changed how he went to sleep at night. For as he went to sleep at night, he said he would pray something like this. Uh, Lord, I'm about to go to sleep, but I know that you'll be continuing your work in the world. I won't know what's going on, but I just commend my life to you as I go to sleep and trust you to care for me. And in the morning, he said, when he would arise, it changed his perspective. That rather than waking up and saying, Lord, uh, what's my agenda today? (laughs) What have I got on? He would rather say, Lord, what have you been doing and how can I now enter in to what it is that you are doing in the world since you are always at work? I sought to implement that in my own spiritual life and sadly my discipline has not been helpful. But I have noticed when I do it, that's exactly what happens. As I wake up, I'm not just thinking, as it were, horizontally about what my life's about, but rather how does the will and purposes and work of God impact how I live my life? What about you? What's your orientation as you enter into each day? What determines how you and I behave in the midst of the um, joys and the jostles of life? Are our hearts and ears attuned to the Lord or to the crowd? Do our words and works reflect a spiritual, vertical perspective and orientation or do they reflect more a horizontal, secular orientation? What does a vertical and horizontal orientation look like? Well, you might recall um, a few uh, weeks ago, I drew your attention to 1 Corinthians 10.11. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. It's a reminder that the Old Testament stories impact us. They're there for us as examples so we won't make the same mistakes. And we're going to see that this morning. As we turn to 1 Samuel 12 through 15, we shall see the contrast between the vertical perspective that comes especially through the work of Samuel and the horizontal perspective that we'll see in the life of Saul and his choices. The ongoing encounter between Samuel and the ageing prophet of God and the young anointed King Saul overflows with divine wisdom for our own following of the Lord. But firstly, we need to look at a very strategic passage, chapter 12. And we look at Samuel and we see the centrality of the word. It's important to recall that the roots of Saul's kingship grew out of distrust and disobedience of Israel, the people of God. Twice in 1 Kings 8, we hear this call for a king, such as or like all the other nations. The nation chosen to be different to the nations in order to point people to the God of all nations had dropped the ball. They'd lost the plot. But God had given permission for a king and Saul had won the People's Choice Award. Saul, while physically imposing, was hesitant in leadership 
and the jury was still out on his character and spiritual pedigree. However, chapter 11 had closed on a positive celebratory note. Uh, Saul had led a great victory over the Ammonites. He had been confirmed as king before all of Israel who had gathered for the celebration and then there'd been a wonderful time of joyful worship. Chapter 11 finishes on a high note. But there's a statement made in verse 15 that's extremely important to note. Saul was made king in the presence of or literally before the Lord. And chapter 12 explains what it is to be a king before the Lord. And in chapter 12, it's almost as if Samuel places himself or the prophetic role on a pedestal to be looked at and how that role functions. And then beside it, he puts the king, the role of the Messiah, the anointed one, and what that looks like. And he's going to explore the relationship between the two. A sort of old order, Samuel, the prophets, and the new order, Messiah, king. Samuel begins by showing from Israel history that the Lord's voice had faithfully provided leadership without resort to copying the nations. And then throughout the judges period when the people cried out for the Lord under duress, the Lord had consistently provided again and again leaders to direct the course of his people and protect them and save them from their enemies. Samuel, of course, being the last of the judges, but also a prophet called by God to care for his people in a difficult context. But Israel had not cried to the Lord when Naash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against them. In 12.12 we see they had foolishly and wickedly asked, we want a king to rule over us ignoring the fact they had a king all the time. It was a rejection of the Lord who was their true king, a king with a wonderful history of rescuing and caring for his people. By way of contrast, he presents Saul. He says, now here is the king you have chosen. The word now, in fact, suggests it's not just now here is the king, but rather... Now, see what you have done. John Woodhouse, in his brilliant commentary on 1 Samuel, writes, What kind of blind insanity would trust this young man rather than the Lord your God? It's not just madness. It's wickedness. My brothers and sisters in Christ, every single time that you and I choose to follow the words and ideas and concepts of our society or our peers, instead of the teachings of Jesus, these words need to be heard by us. Blind folly, foolishness, wickedness. Samuel then again explains that the only way this new leadership will work is if the prophet, the word of the true king, directs 
the, the life of the Messiah, King and people. So in verse 14 we read, If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him, and do not rebel against his commands, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. It'll work. To reinforce the reality that the Lord is king, Samuel then produces a powerful divine sign. Thunderstorms were unheard of in this harvest season, and yet Samuel calls on the Lord, and there is this storm. And it has its desired effect. The people realise their foolishness in rejecting the kingship of God, and they repent. They ask Samuel to pray for them as their evil decision penetrates their heart. Now, as we're coming up to use Mark and seek to bring the powerful New Testament gospel to the hearts of our friends and family, I wish I, with my golfing mates on Mondays, could, uh, who I live with, and many of them are not Christians, if I could conjure up a miracle, maybe that would get their attention. Wouldn't it be easy to hand out a Mark's gospel if you could conjure up a miracle like this? I mean, I'm not talking a thunderstorm because that would wreck the golf. No, I'm thinking more, if I had a sequence of hole-in-ones, I reckon that would get the attention of my mates who I play golf with. They might want to listen to my spiritual conversation if I could pull that off. Now, of course, I don't think that's going to happen. I think God normally uses our lives of godliness and being obedient to Christ to get the attention of our friends. Because that in itself is a miracle that we would obey, because it's not always easy to do, as we'll see in a little while. But, of course, I digress. Samuel then assures Israel that despite their disobedience, the Lord will remain faithful. They may reject his rule and his word, but he will not completely reject them because he had chosen them and also had invested his own name in them and he would act in a way that would ultimately bring glory to his name. The ageing Samuel then confirms he will continue, despite their sinfulness, as God's mouthpiece and intercessor, their prophet and their priest. The king in Israel desperately will need this ministry. And here we see something of the consistency of Scripture. Because in the New Testament, when there's the first conflict in the church in Acts 6, what's the solution? The solution is they do something about the logistics, but they won't lose their priorities and centrality of the word and prayer. We will give ourselves to the word and to prayer. Word and prayer are still the hallmarks of leadership of the people of God if they are to stay on track. Returning now to the image of Samuel and Saul and the pedestals, humanly speaking, we start the chapter with Samuel looking old and no doubt a little worse for wear. On the outer pedestal, you've got a bright new young man with lots of potential, good looking, tall. He's in great shape and he looks good to go. But by the time we've come to the end of chapter 12, we see beyond the externals to the reality. Saul is like a gold-plated piece of balsa wood with no substance. Whereas Samuel 
is solid gold, weighty. He is an essential and primary partner in the leadership of Israel. For he represents the word of the Lord amongst his people. No matter where you are in your journey with the Lord Jesus, there's a wonderful truth being shown us here. Just as Israel and her King Messiah needed the word of God to shape their life, so do we, the church of Jesus Christ. And you and I have the word of God in abundance, but do we avail ourselves of it? You see, the word should be our compass. It's our true north. It keeps us on a path that is pleasing to God. It is as contemporary as it was when it was first breathed out by the God through the Holy Spirit. It can guide us through the moral swamp that is increasingly godless Australia. It can call us to community so that we can overcome our desperate loneliness at times. It can shape our families so that we are safe havens that is, that is amidst the storms of human conflict. It can fashion our business values so that people become more important than profits. It can prioritise our spending so that it reflects the Lord's agenda and not ours. And if you are someone on a journey trying to understand who Jesus is, this word, this powerful word, this Mark's gospel we're going to hand out has the power to lead us to Jesus, to the forgiveness of sins, and to life eternal. Embrace it. Read it. Let it speak into your life. But the word can only do this if we give it our serious and regular attention. Read your Bibles privately. If you can, join a life group where you can read the word in the sweet fellowship of brothers and sisters in Christ. Attend church regularly, not casually, to hear the word proclaimed and come to each of these venues where the word is opened with a soft and tender heart so that we let the word shape us and fashion us and that we do not harden our hearts as Israel did in the wilderness. So we've seen Samuel and the centrality of the word, but now we need to turn to Saul and the challenge the word brings. The biblical record of Saul so far has been a mixed bag. Some positives, some doubtful aspects, and some questions, that is, some question marks, some unknowns. Our English translation of chapter 13, verse 1 reflects that the Hebrew Bible has some, what they believe, some words missing, some, some numbers missing, because it doesn't seem to line up with the fact that Saul was king for a long time. Literally, the Hebrew of verse 1 reads like this. Saul was a son of a year when he reigned, and two years he reigned over Israel. Now, you won't find a New Testament that expresses that very clearly. It normally adds some years in to reflect how long Saul was king, believing that some numbers must have dropped out of the text in copying. But that does not have to be done. It's possible to understand the original as reflecting 
the period of Saul's God-authorised reign. And this was measured from the time all Israel celebrated his kingship at the end of chapter 11 and his rejection at the end of chapter 15. This amounts to only two years and covers the periods that we're looking at this morning. Therefore, verse 1 of chapter 13 signals the tragedy that would be Saul's kingdom. It will be short, but it will not be sweet. Let's explore how this unfolds. Now, you might recall from Shane's sermon last week, but once and a week before, sorry, one Samuel ten seven to eight formed the backdrop to the events of chapter thirteen. Two commands of Saul's from the Lord had yet still to be fulfilled. The the Philistine garrison at Gibeah was still existed; it had not been destroyed as it should have been. And then immediately after that, Samuel had told Saul he should go to Gilgal and wait there with his army till he come and offered sacrifices and then he would give them further instructions. Neither of those things have happened. Notice though that this very fact in the narrative tells us that Solomon, Samuel, was in charge of of directing the life of the king. It's the word should always direct the life of its servants. The text explained that Saul and his son Jonathan, though, do have a company of men with them, and it's Jonathan who strikes the first blow. But things soon escalate. How many of you have had a child that maybe has sometimes made things escalate with your neighbours? You're away and they have a party with loud music or they've smashed a window with a cricket ball and you have to do the repair job. Well, if you think Jonathan, you think escalate that. <laughs> because no sooner has he had a go at the, Phil the Philistine garrison that suddenly there's this massive army outnumbering and outgunning Israel exponentially. They have no chance, physically, humanly speaking, against this vast army. With the Philistine garrison destroyed, though, under Jonathan's direction, Saul, with his army, wait for Samuel at Gilgal, the next part of their obedience to Solomon, something that had been commanded by now a year ago. Saul's situation soon became extremely dire. Picture the scene. It's quite horrendous. Um, he's waiting. He was told to wait up to seven days. He's waiting, keeps looking. Anyone seen him? Anyone seen him? No. Slowly but surely, his troops start to hide, go into the hills and hide in cisterns. Some even are out of here. They cross the Jordan. They want to be out of harm's way. We're told in uh, verse 15 that his army had shrunk from 3,000 to 600. You can imagine how fearful and that as a leader he had to do something. So in desperation he decides to act and he took it on himself to offer the sacrifices Samuel was going to perform. No sooner has he finished than Solomon arrives and the prophet of God pulls no punches. 
What have you done, he says in verse 11. But that quickly becomes, you have done a foolish thing. Saul can't talk his way out of this. Why is it foolish? You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. Now, if you and I are disposed to condemn Saul as though we were beyond such behaviour, let me hasten caution. To obey God in his circumstances was an extraordinary thing to ask. He was being asked to trust God against every human instinct, evidence before him and experience of the moment. It's a huge mistake to think obeying God is an easy thing to do. In many scenarios and circumstances, it may look foolish to trust and obey God. Can you think of situations where it might look foolish for you and I to obey God? Remaining faithful to God when it means that your child or your grandchild or your spouse rejects you because you won't go along with their life choices. When losing your job or a promotion because you uphold Christian ethics in the workplace. Carrying a child to full term, even when you know they will have serious disabilities. To confess faith in Christ, to hand out a Mark's gospel to people who may laugh or ridicule or even persecute you. To articulate a Christian view of sexuality is to be marginalised and seen as being stupid and losing all respect with people. To keep trusting in the Father's care when your spouse or child or grandchild continues to be in horrendous pain and lives with ill health or their mind disappears as dementia progresses. How can we be wise and not foolish? How can we keep trusting and obeying the Lord when our circumstances seem overwhelming? Well, we can only do it when we take our eyes off our circumstances, off the horizontal situation and lift our eyes to the vertical situation and place them in God's promises. See how Samuel goes on in verse 13. He says to Saul, if you had obeyed, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. There was a great promise to be had. In the light of his circumstances, Saul's actions make perfect logical sense. But in the light of the promises of God, his decisions were foolish. And you and I have the Lord's promise that he will be with us always to the close of the age. You and I are never alone as we engage in all the circumstances of life. He is with us. The Spirit of Christ is with us. 
We have the hope of glory, the resurrection from the dead. The world cannot harm our spiritual future in Christ. It's as we focus on the Lord's words of promise and not our circumstances that we can trust and obey. So come, follow the Lord. Saul's disobedience has terminal consequences for his reign. Verse 14, But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Saul had been the people's choice and then anointed by the Lord, but now the Lord will choose his own man, David chosen according to the Lord's will and the Lord's purpose, not the people's. And what a wonderful reminder that is, that despite the sinfulness of humanity, despite our brokenness, despite our failures of the past to be obey and trust him, we are never beyond the pale. The Lord provides ongoing forgiveness, ongoing support. He has another leader who will step up to the plate God's purposes are not overthrown by sin. Now in 1 Samuel 14, we have no time to look at it this morning, but we see a contrast between Jonathan, his son, and Saul. Jonathan is up and about serving the Lord and speaking of the Lord and trusting in the Lord. Saul is sitting under the pomegranate tree, And he increasingly, as the chapter goes on, gives less and less reference to the Lord in his life. But it's in 1 Samuel 15 that Saul's actions reach the height of foolishness. Samuel, the prophet of God, directs Saul to fulfill the Lord's promise of judgment on the Amalekites. Saul chooses to adjust the instructions for his and his people's advantage and therefore does not fulfill the plans of the Lord has given. When rebuked, Saul seeks to justify his actions with religious reasons. But the words in verses 22-23 ram home the Lord's perspective. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? The answer? No. To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Choosing to go our own way arrogantly is like being adulterous. It's worshipping something other than God. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. These words explain the basic reality of what God requires from his children. They go to the heart of biblical faith. God speaks, humans listen and obey. Religious activity doesn't cut it. Disobedience isn't being naughty. It's wholesale rebellion. It's spiritual anarchy. Have we got that? Never become indifferent to the word of God. Never become casual with sin. Lorne Sammy writes, 
a neglected garden tends towards weeds, not vegetables. A neglected building tends towards decay rather than towards improvement. Unless we pay close attention to the things we have learned from God, if we simply do nothing and neglect these things, we tend to drift away, not towards him. That is Saul's tragic story. The way 1 Samuel 15 begins and ends reflects this. It begins with Saul receiving the Lord's instructions from Samuel, but it closes with Saul never seeing Samuel again. In other words, the king is no longer the Lord's king because he no longer has access to the word of the Lord. He is left to his own devices and God will provide a new king. Well, the study of Saul is a study in leadership failure. The people wanted a king like all the other nations. The Lord gave them what they wanted and it was an unmitigated disaster. Saul proves to be incompetent, insecure, self-focused. At one point he builds a little monument to himself. He is flawed, but above everything else, he is foolish. He doesn't heed the word of the Lord. The story of Saul and his persistent refusal to let the word of the Lord shape his actions is summarised well in Proverbs 14.12. There's a way that appears to be right, but in the end it leads to death. To follow human logic and neglect the word of the Lord is both foolish and deadly. Again, John Woodhouse provides some challenging reflections disobedience to the word of God is always foolish why do we do it good question God is completely good infinitely wise and all-powerful why do we human beings fail to obey him our sin makes no sense every time we disobey God's word we demonstrate that we believe he is not good he is not wise and he is not all-powerful. How foolish is that? Every act of disobedience to the word of God is irrational. Like Saul, we find ourselves stumbling because we are weak, frail, fragile and neglectful of the Lord and his word. But good news, the obedient king has come. And this king is no fool. He is not like Saul, nor thankfully like us. His name is Jesus. He is the pioneer and perfecter of faith, the Son of God. Hebrews 4, 15 to 16 reminds us, we have a high priest who is able to empathise with our weaknesses one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need and temptation. The solution to obedience in all circumstances is to follow the king in the power of his spirit the source of all mercy and grace, to help us in our need. 
let the spiritual vertical orientation of God, his word, shape the horizontal actions that we take day to day. Let us pray. There's a prayer on the screen, I think, um, hopefully, maybe not. Here it is. Can we say this together? Father, without you, we cannot follow you. So mercifully grant that your Holy Spirit will in every way direct and rule our hearts so that we turn from sinful world's words and follow your words. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, we come now to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Um, we, if you find your little cups, has everyone got a cup? I want to make sure we all have one of these. Anyone not have one, please raise your hands and we'll get some, get some to you. Just put your hands up. Keep them up until you get one if you haven't got one. Um, some, some down the front here. Or halfway down, sorry. Um, Adele, down here. Anybody else over here? We all got those? Oh, and down the back too. Thank you. That's great. One of the things the Lord's Supper does is that, it, if you think about it, it causes us to look in several directions, it causes us to reflect. The first thing it does, it causes us to look up and give thanks to God that we have these symbols of a sacrifice that was paid for us, that enables sinful people like you and I to be forgiven. Of course, that leads us to immediately look back in history to the cross of Christ from which these symbols come. It causes us to look ahead as well. We're told that this is a symbolic meal that we are to participate in until we, the kingdom comes, until Christ returns. So it causes us to look forward as well. It also causes us to look around because it's not a meal we do. This is not a private activity. This is a communal activity. It's a meal of a family. So we look around and see fellow brothers and sisters, fellow broken, sinful people who need to be forgiven and are glad that we can be forgiven. And finally, it causes us to look in, to look in at our own lives. As we've seen this morning, we know we're frail and fragile. We need to be forgiven. And so take a moment just to be quiet before I lead us through the words of, of um, consecration and confess your sin to the Lord. Confess your brokenness knowing that we can be confident we will be forgiven. Heavenly Father, we are incredibly grateful that you have 
provided a sacrifice at the cross of Christ and confirmed that it worked in the resurrection, that we can be forgiven and washed clean and become children of God, bound for eternity. Thank you that you forgive us and cleanse us. Words from 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night of betrayed, took bread. And when he had given you thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I invite you now to carefully lift the clear piece first. It can take a little while to jiggle off and then just ask you to hold the wafer in your hand and so I can see that we've all done that so we can participate together. Thank you. Take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving. Now carefully pull the cellophane silver back. Again, when you've done that, if you can just sort of not lift it up so that I know, so we can do this together. Don't want to preempt. Drink this in remembrance that Christ's blood was shed for you, and be thankful. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your incredible, amazing grace that you have pardoned us and forgiven us. Lord, may we choose the path of being people who listen to your voice and not those who don't take it seriously or seek to shape it and fashion it to their own ways. May we radiate your glory and your generosity by the way we live our lives in every circumstance. We ask this in Jesus' name.